Hello everyone, and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? I'm here again with my good friend Baz. How are you doing, Baz? I'm really well. Here we go again. Whee, Smart Party's <laughs> back. <laughs> well, I've been on holidays and stuff. I've been to the Kraken in Germany. I've been to the Furnace in Sheffield. Uh, and I've run, I don't know, like about 10 games now or something in a week and played half a dozen or something. Uh, how, how many games have you played? Uh, many, many more than that in my <laughs> head. <laughs> I have been remiss. No one's going to beat your iron gymming. Like Fabian does pie charts of how many games you play and stuff like that, mate. You go to conventions <laughs> just like I don't know how you manage it. I really don't. I haven't got the energy. I'm, I'm older and wiser, mate. I, I pick and choose my gaming moments. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm like a big bear. You see, I'm going to hibernate now. I've, <laughs> I've stuffed myself up for the winter, and then that's going to be it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, apart from maybe. Grog meat and dragon meat and various other things are coming up, but they're just one day affairs. <laughs> I've been running D and D for my school club, mate. I have I have twelve players in my D and D campaign at the moment. Simultaneously, it's like a riot every week. So I'm I'm doing it hardcore. Not not with you just sitting around with nice elderly <laughs> gentlemen drinking sherry and wondering what to do about your next perception check. <laughs> the combined age is probably the same though. So probably, <laughs> yeah. Actually, it is, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, it's special guest time again. We've done that thing where we, we no. get one or two people on and then more keep turning up. So, hooray for that. We've got some new people to speak to. And speaking of uh, running games and things, I was running some Cthulhu uh, in Germany, which leads me towards Berlin the Wicked City, one of the latest releases for, for yeah. Call of Cthulhu, which was written uh, largely by uh, David Larkins, who we've got on pretty soon. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So, um, yeah, David is responsible for that. Uh, which is you know a very well received work from last year I think maybe early this year I suppose this year I think yeah 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 so um, you know I think I think owner of the best dressed book in recent months um, absolutely uh, and it's the insides have merit as well but he came on really to talk to us about one of your true passions didn't he mate mm. oh passions I see what you did so, there do you see what I did there mate yeah that's a good link to King Arthur Pendragon yeah he's the, the new line editor for the the whole line and it sounds like in true Chaosium fashion they've uh, got a lot of things in the pipeline I think going back to the, the bad old days of three, four, five years ago when Chaosium was languishing a little bit people were clamouring for any kind of release and the new team have definitely accelerated and it's good to have uh, Dave in position because he's got like a whole raft of things that are just waiting in the pipeline ready to get shot out into the gaming world Yeah, exactly Yeah, so we, we I really enjoyed that conversation with Dave that you guys are about to hear uh, we speak at some length about all things Pendragon, plus a little bit about the other stuff that he's had his his writing hand in over the past few years. And and I think, you know, listen carefully because there are some plans that get revealed within this conversation, which are which are pretty exciting. And and if if half of them come to fruition, then there's a lot of life left in the old dog yet. Yeah, uh, really excited to hear about what's coming up. So that's all good. So, talking of coming up, after this short advert, you can hear from Dave Lockins, the lineator for King Arthur Pendragon. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new smart party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. 
Join the smart party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! So here we are with the lighter for King Arthur Pendragon RPG at Chaosium, Mr. David Larkins. How are you doing, Dave? Great. Hello. Great to be on the show. <laughs> I bet you that to all the shows. And Baz as well. How are you doing? I'm really well, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on, David. Really appreciate you making the time for us. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Cool. So it was quite interesting news earlier in the, the year when we heard that the, the Cassium line was going to get, or sorry, Cassium itself was going to get the line for King Arthur Pendragon. So initially, I think it was just um, just doing a print of what was there. But surely by now, you must have some big ideas about the future direction for the line. So do you want to hit us with what you're doing right now and, and what you see in the future? Oh, of course. Yeah, let's get right into it. Essentially, uh, Greg and I were working together before he passed. And so we had a bit of a, a plan in place already. And he's actually left us with, oh, gosh, boxes and boxes and, and files and files of, of material. So that's kind of my role right now is curating uh, his material that he left us. And we have a bunch of other material from uh, people who have submitted things. So the transition from the line's former publisher, Nocturnal Media, to Chaosium represented an opportunity to just kind of pause, take stock of where we were at, get all of Greg's stuff collated, indexed, figure out, you know, where he wanted to go with the line. I had some idea, obviously, but, you know, just based off stuff we hadn't had a chance to talk about. So we're now in a position where we are going to be really rolling material out in the next year and years to come, of course. So what we just put out actually was the um, quest of the red blade uh, for mm-hmm. the Greg day Memorial. Uh, that was the scenario that Greg originally wrote back in 1991 and he had been revising uh, lately for publication. So I took that text. I, well, it really, it was a much larger scenario. It's kind of a, almost like a sandbox uh, adventure. So I just sort of pulled some of it out, pulled that particular scenario out of it, cleaned it up, edited it, we uh, worked, uh, you know, on art, maps, layout. It was a great little mm, sort of testing ground to develop a new look and a new feel for what Chaosium Pendragon is going to look like going forward. So I was quite proud of that. Uh, I think it came out really well. And other than that, we've got uh, several books in the pipeline. I think probably the next one in the line is going to be our book on magic. So... Uh, If you're familiar with the Pendragon line, the basic concept is you play knights. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you might have a lady character as a backup, uh, but not since 4th edition has there been an actual magic system. And so this is something that uh, David Zeman, who is a longtime collaborator with Greg, uh, has been working on for several years now, actually. And um, I think it's great. Um, I edited it last year. And we're basically moving it forward into layout and art at this point. So hopefully we'll see that, uh, if not late this year, early next year. It covers, basically what David did is he went through all of the Arthurian medieval texts and highlighted anywhere the magic appears. You know, how does magic work in the Arthurian tales? And then from that, he synthesized a magic system that builds off the the system we saw back in fourth edition, but adds a lot of neat new features and does allow the play of magician characters, but more as sort of backup characters in the same way you might have a lady character, uh, you know, in your, in your back pocket, so to speak. 
Uh, so you can use your magician character to help the party, but you can also use your magician character as an adversary. Uh, you can you can step in and run a one-off session for your group uh, with the magician character, you know, scheming against them. Uh, so it's it's pretty fun. It opens up a lot of narrative opportunities. And even if you're not interested in having magician characters, there's tons of other stuff. Uh, he did a whole catalog of all the Arthurian, uh, you know, enchanted items and magical devices, potions and pastilles and everything else, you know. So that's all in there. Information on pagan gods, monsters, all kinds of good stuff. So really excited to see that one coming out. And then also I'm working on a GM screen, which uh, uh, hopefully we'll be getting out pretty soon. So those are the next two in the pipeline, but we got tons more. You see, Parfing wants the GM screen to have a castle on the front of it. So you can... <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be a little tricky. <laughs> but we've got some great art. And, uh, and of course, you know, Chaosium likes to put a bunch of extra stuff in with the screen. So we're working on all the material that we're going to include with that, which would be a couple scenarios and uh, some, some words of wisdom from Greg and, you know, various other uh, odds and ends. Okay, that's cool. I mean, uh, we did jump straight in there. I probably should say for listeners who haven't played Pendragon that it's kind of uh, Arthurian a knightly game, uh, and you can kind of go through um, all the stories and myths almost as scenarios that happen in the background, along with other padded material that goes with it. But it, for me, it was one of the very first kind of like, I mean, call it a laser-focused indie game if you want. That's what one of my, my friends called it at one point, because it's, it's really serious about its intent of what it does. So it, it does the thing of playing Arthurian knights from basically from squires up to owning your own castles to having kids who then grow up to be knights themselves all the rest of it. But it really focusing on that and does all that very well. And I think one of the main features is the the passions and traits system so that uh, your knights basically have a little profile there about whether they're reckless or cowardly or honest or just or whatever. And you've got a, a, one, a zero to 20, which kind of like slides between those two so you can see how trustworthy or how suspicious your knight is. I think that's a really good feature for um, guiding role players who maybe look at something like Pendragon and think, well, what, what do I do as a knight? I don't understand how would I act. You've instantly got a little profile there, haven't you, which gives you an idea about what to do with your character if you don't know how to act in a situation. Absolutely. I, I, I like to think of Pendragon as sort of the granddaddy of, of narrative and uh, a story game uh, design philosophy. Uh, it's it's a nice sweet spot between old school uh, mechanics and that sort of uh, how are these mechanics, you know, emulating a genre, guiding the story, etc. My sort of elevator pitch for Pendragon is that the core activity is that your knights questing for glory and your traits and passions are there to both help and hinder you in that acquisition of glory. So. Yeah, absolutely. So it was interesting to hear there that you, you've obviously been quite involved with uh, Greg Stafford in terms of talking about where the line might go on, and I didn't quite realize that was that was a thing. Um, because I think one of the things I've noted about, uh, for example, RuneQuest and even Call of Cthulhu is that, well, I'm calling back to the old school roots of the games because they are some of the games that have been out since the start of role-playing almost. They have sort of like changed a little bit under the new Chaosium management team. I think it's, you know, the, the pace of releases has accelerated. Uh, perhaps the accessibility has been a feature as well. Do you think that's true of Pendragon as well? I notice particularly I was speaking to Robin Laws last week about what he's doing with uh, Paris and the Big Rubble for Inquest, and he was saying he's taken the old products and wants to keep it as it is, but make it more useful and more relevant for today. So how do you think you can balance that uh, sort of like fan service almost of the old guide and keeping the feel of how it used to be and, and sort of like, you know, p- paying homage to Greg's legacy and so forth, but in the 
at the same time, you want to make it new and fresh, right, and introduce new things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's, yeah, that's a really, uh, really good point, because that has been a topic of discussion, of course. And uh, first of all, of course, we want to just make the game more accessible, we want to get it into the distribution chain that Chaosium has built up so effectively. So, you know, uh, the current version of the core rulebook is, uh, it's the fifth edition, it's the uh, third iteration, so we call it version 5.2, just because there's been some errata incorporated and a new layout, some new art, and that kind of thing. That came out in 2016, and for the longest time, it was PDF only, and then it was uh, print-on-demand, and it was part of Kickstarter fulfillment, and so on and so forth. So now we're finally getting it out to stores, and we're getting it on shelves, we're getting it sold at conventions, and that kind of thing, which is just fantastic, you know. So that's goal number one is just get it out there get it more visible for the existing uh chaosium fans people who play call of cthulhu or rune quest who want something a little different you know and that's another cornerstone of pendragon is that it is mythic role-playing in the same tradition as uh as rune quest so uh but it's it's of a totally different flavor so we want to just offer as many different possible gaming experiences i guess uh you know coming out of chaosium but yeah, going forward with Pendragon, uh, its focus is its greatest strength, and it can also be a weakness because people hear it and they go, "Oh, I don't know, I don't want to just play a knight. What's that all about?" You know. So it's 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 really getting the word out to folks that you know you're questing for glory, you got your traits and passions. Really, what it comes down to in terms of your experience of playing a character is finding out what kind of knight your character is going to be. Are you going to be famous? Are you going to be infamous? Are you going to be a knight of great chivalry and honor are you going to push back against arthur are you team mordred that sort of thing you know it's it's just a great way to engage with one of the greatest myth cycles you know in in literature and in human history so uh it's just sort of broadcasting that to uh to a wider audience and getting people on board with that uh that involves you know making our products more available and attractive to potential buyers really like with our art our layout you know, so on and so forth. So uh, one, one of the things also we really want to see is uh, more women playing Pendragon. My home gaming group is actually uh, two-thirds women, and they love Pendragon. But I've heard from other women that, you know, you think of a knight and you think of a male character, you think of, uh, you know, the Arthurian tales, you think of these male knights running around. Some of them, you know, some some women players, you know, aren't as on board with that. So I'm actually making an effort to bring in more women writers to work on stuff. I've got a couple already working on some projects for the future. So, you know, just little things like that. Go ahead. I was just going to ask David, what are the touchstones for people who maybe are, are curious about Pendragon? Because it, it can look a little bit intimidating from the outside. Maybe you think you need to have some kind of medieval scholarship. And, and back when I was playing Pendragon way back, you know, we didn't have the kind of modern media we do now. Now we have like, you know, just going back to your previous point, we have Brienne of Tarth, which at least is like a visual touchstone that people can can pick up on these days. I mean, you know, where where is it coming from with Pendragon? Is it coming from the John Borman movie? That was always my favourite kind of look for Excalibur, that kind of thing. I take it it's not got much to do with like, you know, people chanting, we will rock you and lances shattering in the Hollywood version. <laughs> well, maybe it has. I don't know. Can you do that with Pendragon? You can absolutely do that with Pendragon. And 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 many of my sessions have that kind of irreverent humor to them, I have to say. <laughs> but um, one of the things that Greg really managed to do with the game is synthesize a lot of different uh, strands of Arthurian mythology into one coherent 
mm. you know, whole. So uh, Excalibur was one of his uh, primary visual influences for sure. The core mm. of uh, of Pendragon is uh, Le Morte d'Arthur. But Greg would always say, if you're going to read one book, read The Once and Future King, you know, um, right? So you can just, and, and that's the thing is, much like your Glorantha will vary, your Pendragon will vary. So the attitude in the book and in all the publications is, don't worry about it too much. Don't overthink it. Just jump in and have fun with it in whatever way that means to you. Uh, that being said, the core rulebook does have a lot of background information to for GMs and players, you know, to get them going in terms of medieval history. Um, the overall arc of the campaign uh, is 80 years or 85 years, depending. Um, and that mirrors the timeline of the Middle Ages. So you start off more or less in like, you know, 11th century Norman period. And by the end, you've got full gothic plate armor and massive castles and you know courtly love and all that sort of thing so uh you can kind of pick and choose sort of a a smorgasbord in that way uh that all being said we are working on a starter set so don't have a a date or anything for that yet but to that point you know um just an entry point for pendragon is Mm -hmm. is needed i think and uh so the cthulhu starter set did so well you might as well try it again yeah, it definitely seems a big thing in roleplay. We we did a, a podcast about it a few weeks back on, on starter sets. It's, mm-hmm. it's just one of the, I don't know, I think when they first started coming out, it felt a little bit like you're buying the game twice almost, certainly if you're going to buy the main book. But like, there's no doubt in, I don't think, for, for anybody's mind that how useful they are, or certainly from other producers as well, like Cubicle 7 or, um, you know, Modifius or other producers. They just, just fly off the shelves and uh, everybody raves about all the starter sets. So I think it's definitely good to hear that that's happening. Yeah, and, and and I want it to be something that, you know, gives you enough of the game that if that's all you want, you can get plenty of hours of entertainment out of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to go and get the core book and expand uh, various options and background details and all that other stuff, that's great too, you know, but you have that option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's been a thought about, I was going to say making Pendragon more short form, but just, I don't think it really needs that. I mean, I run it a lot of conventions, so I more often run it as a one shot than anything. But when I speak to people about Pendragon or mention it, the first thing we say is like, oh, yeah, that's a game where you get to play your sons and your grandsons and stuff. And I don't think that happens that often. I mean, maybe, well, I don't know. Perhaps I'm just too short of time now. And when I was younger, I might have done a big Pendragon campaign, but I did one, and then that was kind of it. You didn't, like, keep doing, you know, 80 years of play kind of thing in two years sort of thing. So is there a mind on how you have played Pendragon but do it for 10 weeks or something or something like that? Is that does that feature at all, or are you just providing content and then let people do what they want with it the the dynastic aspect of the game is is definitely one of its more notable features i agree but you're absolutely right i I think most people even when they they venture to play the great pendragon campaign usually only end up doing it in chunks uh that was certainly my first experience with it the first time i ran it about 15 years ago uh you know or not quite 15 years ago, but, you know, around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, uh, we did about 20 game years, I want to say. And, you know, people did marry and have kids, but I don't think anyone played any heirs, if I remember correctly. So, you know, the game works perfectly fine, you know, just as a as a game of, of, of knights on quests and, uh, you know, intrigue and drama and, and all that other good stuff. You really don't absolutely have to add to the bells and whistles of children and manners and, you know, estate management and all that kind of uh, extra thing. Um, and in fact, the core rulebook makes reference to the 
dynastic aspect of the game. But uh, really, you know, if you want to do that, you get the Great Pendragon campaign. Is that still available? It is available. Um, you can get it uh, in PDF or print on demand. Currently, we will be, you know, right now we're looking into getting some of the nocturnal media products that uh, came out um, sort of revised a little bit, relayed out and released as Chaosium, you know, proper Chaosium products, just because it's easier from a distribution angle. But for right now, you can get the PDFs through the Chaosium website and print on demand through Drive-Thru RPG. That's one of the, uh, the, the probably people's top, top 10 must-play campaigns. It's up there with like Massive Out, Nihilathotep, and The Enemy Within, and all of those big classics. I've not had the pleasure myself. I feel like I need to wait for I get my to my retirement home <laughs> if I crack that one open. But, you know, something like that makes people want to play Pendragon knowing that there's some support there for a great big sprawling epic. Because we all like to think we're going to play these things, don't we? Oh, sure. And and the the thing about the Great Pendragon campaign is that it's it's both it's, you know, it's a double edged sword. Right. And no, mm. no nightly pun intended, um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, on the one hand, it is this this amazing product uh, that that really, I think, stands on its own as a work of Arthurian scholarship, just uh, all, everything that Greg put into that. And, and, you know, you can absolutely play it as the whole campaign. I've done it multiple times. A uh, colleague of mine, Alan Barr, I think he's done it like 12 times, which is wow. pretty, pretty wild or more at this point. Uh, just as easily, you can get the Great Pendragon campaign and just use it as background material. So you choose where in the timeline you want to set your game. And then the GPC will just kind of give you some information. What's going on elsewhere? What's up? What's up with Lancelot and Guinevere right now? You know, what are they up to? Uh, you know, is Mordred an issue yet? If he is, what's he doing? What, what is he doing? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that way you can just kind of sprinkle in whatever kind of background events you want into your own game. And again, run it for two weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever. I think it must be tough coming up with new material that's going to fit in with what's already gone before almost. But, I mean, <clears throat> this is a personal preference thing. I know some people like doing the whole kind of mythical tourism stuff. So if they see, you know, Mordred in the background at a tournament, they get all excited and, you know, that kind of thing. As for me, I'm more interested when I play games about making about my characters and what's happening with, the, you know, the players' characters rather than anything else in the background. So Absolutely. Um, have you got any sort of advice on balancing that or any thoughts about how you might be developing things? Because it's something that... I found that the One Ring, for example, or other games like that, that mm. it seems clear that authors have quite often a view about the feel the need to provide some of that because otherwise, why are you playing that game if there's not that element? But also, you don't want it to be overbearing, I guess, as well. So do you kind of like offer optionals in there or do you have it as tapestry in the background for people to draw in themselves? Or what's your approach to that kind of thing? Yeah, my, my personal approach, and, and this is really just going off of what's in the Great Pendragon campaign and, and the scenarios as well that have been published in the past, is um, it can be fun to have a cameo or two, uh, especially for people who are familiar with the legends and the stories, you know, so Sir, Sir Gawain shows up and everyone's like, whoa, you know, uh, it makes it kind of fun. But you always want to keep it centered on the, the player characters, absolutely. And, you know, with the trait and passion rules, it's very easy to do that actually because a lot of times you have an idea going in of what's going to happen and then somebody fumbles a passion role and they go mad or somebody criticals their reckless role and they do something really reckless and then it's you've got to clean up the mess afterwards and then that creates these knock-on effects that even if you had some ideas about weaving in the larger stories you find yourself suddenly pulled along in the direction that the, the 
players' roles are going in, you know. So I find the game just tends to do that on its own, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I suppose another aspect that I've done in the past as well is look at other settings for Pendragon. So is that something you're considering? So people always talk about, I know recently there was, was it Paladin, the sort of Charlemagne period, and then someone mm-hmm. inevitably bring up the Crusades at some point. <laughs> I bring a kind of Teutonic Knights one set, sort of Mythic Russia kind of angle. So is that something that's bubbling away in the background as well about what other kind of settings that aren't our and you could apply as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, the the um, litmus test for is this suitable for Pendragon is is there a, is there a body of, of work surrounding something that's, kind of a, a nice synthesis of history and and legend you know so obviously the the paladin is the matter of france if if pendragon is the matter of britain so we have charlemagne and his paladins and we have you know uh, uh italian literary tradition like orlando furioso uh worked in there and really uh the game covers actually a lot of uh stuff that up to uh, you know, at this point, still hasn't actually been translated into English. Uh, so there's there's a lot of stuff in there. When I was reading through the rule book, that you know I'd never heard about certainly, and and just you have an entire literary playground to to mess around with there. Uh, so that's Paladin. Now we also have a couple other. Uh, whatever you want to call them, powered by Pendragon, I guess, uh, games in the in the works. Um, these were these were commissioned or written years ago, and they've just kind of been sitting and waiting for the right time to come out. So the time is coming up soon. You know, it'll happen. Uh, the first one is um, under the working title of Myrmidon, and that is set in heroic age Greece. So the time of the Trojan War, you've got uh, Heracles and Achilles and you know, all the, all the stars. <laughs> so, um, with some, with some great tweaks to the system to reflect the realities of Greek myth, you know, the, uh, the catharsis and the downfall of the hero, for example, you know, and just the mythic cycles of that sort. So that'll probably be the next one in the pipeline. And then, uh, actually sort of my, I don't know the, the way I got into the guild, I guess you could say my, my, uh, my journeyman's, uh, qualifier was uh, writing up the uh, manuscript for a Pendragon spinoff set in 11th century Japan. So it's like early samurai, you know, the Genpei Wars, if you're familiar with that era, the Book of Genji and all that. So yeah, that's that's uh, written and will eventually see the light of day as well. That's really interesting. That it's something, yeah, it's something we've talked about previously is doing like Legend of the Five Rings, but using the Pendragon system and that, that sort of don't know. There's a few ones like that, like, and the ancient Greece thing as well sounds very interesting. There's there's quite a lot of things when you think about real world history about settings you could pick, and the way that the Pendragon system with the kind of the traits and passions of various other bits and pieces could slot into. Absolutely, yeah, it, it fit really well in that Japanese setting. It it had actually like been Pendragon sounds like a good brain. Yeah, yeah, I think I, that's that's the working title. You know, we'll we'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the Japanese the uh, the samurai game uh, uh, was was in development by a, a Japanese uh, game designer named uh, Nobuaki Takarube. But uh, he just you know he's too busy working his uh, you know other design work and uh, publishing and whatnot. So I sort of took up uh, the challenge and. Um, and I found that the Pendragon system fit perfectly, so I'm really excited about that. That Pendragon system was, um, and it's been around for a little while, hasn't it? But it's been absolutely perfect for so many different things. Was there rumours it was going to power RuneQuest at one point, or was that just like in an alternate universe? Because 
I've heard that rumor before. That was uh, back in the 90s. They had a um, sort of a fan-made, fan-written thing. Uh, I think David Dunham wrote it yeah. uh, called uh, uh, Pendragon Pass. And um, yeah, it was basically running right. Glorantham right. Adventures right. with Pendragon. And and the Pendragon DNA is in the new the new uh, edition of RuneQuest because uh, you have passions in there now. And the runes act a lot like the way mm-hmm. traits do in Pendragon, which my understanding is that Pendragon basically came out of what Greg had originally wanted to do with RuneQuest third edition. And uh, because of the whole Avalon Hill thing, wasn't able to do. So he's, he said, well, I'm going to take these ideas and uh, put them into our Arthurian game because I like Arthurian fantasy too. <laughs> so <laughs> so in that way, uh, yeah. RuneQuest and Pendragon are very much, you know, sort of bound together by that legacy and are uh, kind of cousins in a way. Yeah, I think. It was last year at the crack, and Jeff Richard turned up with some of Greg's handwritten notes. And he showed me like the some of the original handwritten stuff of doing how Pendragon will work in RuneQuest, almost kind of thing. But you know, it was almost get the white gloves out time because the papers were that old. It was <laughs> you didn't want to expose them to like direct sunlight because they might fall yeah, apart. Yeah, they? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess one of the other features of uh, having Chaosium and um, the sort of the, the rebirth of the, the company and the, and the various lines. Is there's been a lot more uh, products, but also like better production values. And I think something you've um, blogged about before previously is the importance of art in in RPGs as well, and that's definitely something we see a lot more of a better quality in the new lines that Kirsten producing. So, have you got any influence over the art direction for Pendragon, or any thoughts about how that's going to look? Or, I mean, I presume it's going to be of the same ethos that let's get more and better art in there. But any th- particular thoughts around the artwork? Oh, very much so, and it's actually been one of my uh, most treasured uh, duties now uh, as the line editor is is getting to commission artists and write art briefs. I, I just think it's great. And that was something with the uh, Red Blade scenario, you know, where I was commissioning the cover art, the portrait of Sir Gregor, which was kind of Greg's alter ego in the scenario, the, the maps, uh, and then the castle diagram by Matt Ryan, who did an amazing job. And, you know, there's just something so fantastic about you know, sending out some notes and maybe some links to look at, you know, kind of what I've got in my head. And then two to six weeks later, getting something back. And it's just like, wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I'm, I've always been the sort who puts a, a high priority on, on uh, the value of art in role-playing games. So uh, that's, that's a, um, and Jeff Richard is, is right there with me and everyone else as well. So it's been, uh, that's been another big topic of discussion is the aesthetic look of Pendragon going forward. So the magic book will, uh, sort of be our first, uh, book length, um, exploration of that, that new aesthetic, I think. And it will definitely be carrying on the tradition, but like you say, more of it and, um, you know, to, a to caliber that, that Chaosium, you know, is proud of. High resolution woodcuts. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So w- while we're talking art and things like that, I should probably bring up at this point um, that you wrote Berlin the Wicked City for uh, Call of Cthulhu as well. I did. I did. If, if if the samurai manuscript got me on board with Greg and Pendragon, then uh, I think Berlin got me on board with Chaosium. So I pitched that to them back in uh, 2015, right? the very night that uh, the the new management announced their involvement with the company. And um, yeah, I, I could not be happier with the way it turned out. I think it looks amazing. And I've been really pleased by the, by the feedback and responses I've been getting. So. Excellent. So I have thoughts on this book. 
<laughs> yeah, please. Let's hear it. <laughs> Most of them are good. I probably made that sound more of a mess than it meant to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a really good resource if people haven't seen it. I think that the thing that gets talked about the most about it is the front cover because it is just such a great cover. But if you actually open it up, it's really yeah. There's some nice content inside as well. It turns out there's actually words that you yeah. can use in your game. Yeah, l- lucky that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. So, um, what was it that that inspired you to sort of pick that period? Because it seems almost that Weimar Germany in the, in the 30s, even without the Cthulhu element, feels a little bit creepy and dirty, and a good place to do hardboiled noir adventures, even even if you didn't have cultists and all the other stuff that you're talking as well. So was it that aspect in itself that first drew you, or is it something you're personally interested in, or how did it come about? Yeah, a little of both. I mean, I've always been interested in German history, um, even since I was a kid. And uh, actually going way, way back to the early 90s, I picked up GURPS Horror 2nd Edition, and I was reading through it. And there's this little section in there about Weimar Germany and said something about like this would be an excellent setting for a horror game and i thought yeah it sure would and i kept waiting for somebody to write it so uh, eventually enough time went by there was a, a german language berlin source book maybe about 20 years ago but uh nothing in english and so you know eventually i just uh got the idea that well it, originally it was like i'll run a cthulhu campaign set in berlin and then that kind of turned into maybe i'll actually write this up as a proposal and try to get it published so and then the timing, like I said, was just, you know, happened to work out with the new new management coming in. So, Sure. And, and I think as a, as a supplement, it, it hits the right spot. So there's some good period piece pictures. There's the maps, all that kind of stuff. But, um, I mean, I guess stuff that perhaps in a GURPS book you might not find, but in a Cthulhu book makes sense is like a list of all the museums. <laughs> sure, exactly. <laughs> because that's the thing the players are going to go and look at <laughs> and try and research things. And, you know, stuff about secret societies and, you know, just basic topology of the city and how you get about and what different bits look like. So without wanting to blow smoke, I think it does a really good job of giving you a, a good idea of how to play a Cthulhu game in that setting and an area, which is what you want for the book, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, the museum list came out of this uh, Baedeker's Guide to Berlin from 1926 that I Ooh, nice. was one of the foundational documents that I used to write the book. So, yeah, as soon as I cracked that open, like museums, well, yes, that needs to go in a Cthulhu book. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I drew upon a lot of different resources and synthesized them as much as I could uh, just so that people could, could just have this one volume reference, essentially. Did you have to spend much time in Berlin yourself? Because, I mean, forgive me, but you don't sound very German, so I'm assuming this isn't reporting <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> from the streets. <laughs> I, I've, worked, yeah, I've worked extensively on my non-regional diction. Uh, no. Uh... <laughs> very good. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'd say 95%. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my dirty little secret is I've never actually been to Berlin. Uh, <gasps> yes, I know. Sand checks yes. all round. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is that uh, Berlin in the 1920s versus Berlin today is is a very different place. Uh, even just in terms of uh, landmarks and buildings, you know, so many of which were lost uh, over the next, you know, 30 to 40 years. Um, so it was a little bit like visiting a, you know, it was like, you know writing a supplement on uh, on London in the Middle Ages. You know, if I'd been to London today, that would mm. kind of help me a little bit, but not that much. You know, it's almost, yeah. you know, completely different. But, you know, really, I, I I was a little worried about that. But, you know, we had a Berlin playtest group with, uh, you know, native Berliners uh, playtesting the scenarios. Mm. And Jeff told me that 
uh, after like the first or second session, everyone was sitting around trying to think which German game designer was writing this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when he told me that, I, I knew I was okay. You know, <laughs> it is like, risky, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah, absolutely. As UK guys, we've had to suffer London source books from American writers for quite a long time now, <laughs> and they are hilarious at best. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, circling back to Pendragon, you know, that's that's definitely a concern of mine, you know, is to, <laughs> to do the do the British geography, uh, you know, the, what it deserves, you know, and not not uh, not gloss over that too much. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. This summer I was on holiday. I went down to Cornwall actually, mm. and I spent a couple of hours in Merlin's Cave. So Tintagel's Tintagel's kind of um, like Vegas now. <laughs> but you know if you if you narrow your eyes and look in the right direction you can imagine a fog rolling in off the sea it kind of helps put yourself on that landscape it's amazing the, the yeah. sort of the power that the actual landscape can have and and the, and the best role-playing books they really do give you that sense of another time another place yes yes that's always my goal with my writing is to try and evoke that so you know you can get a lot out of books um but sometimes there's there's no substitute for visiting the real place and you know eventually i'll go over to berlin and if i realize i really missed the mark on something you know there's always second edition (laughs) (laughs) well you definitely need to get have a word with management and get yourself over because um I'm just back from the Kraken, which happens this time every year, which is based in Germany. And most people fly to Berlin first, and obviously there's a Chaosium presence there. We have you now Jason Jarrell and Ling Hardy, and Mike's been out. In fact, I think most of the Chaosium team have. So you just got to get yourself on that rotor. I think you're one of the few people that hasn't been out yet. So do that and get yourself to Essen Spiel as well the week after. And yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm still I'm still fetching coffee for everybody. I'm still the new guy, so you know, I got to get the seniority in first, and then you know, I'll be jet setting at that point. <laughs> sure. So I imagine a lot of your time now is taken up with the, the line developer role, and you've got a whole line to to look after. But as we've just witnessed, you've got you know some writing chops as well. So is there any opportunities if you to do more writing? Is it something you want to do, or are you just happy enough kind of guiding Pendragon for now, and that's kind of the taking up all your time? Uh, I am I am managing to carve out some time for writing for sure uh, because that is you know I, I do enjoy doing that and uh, Mike won't frankly let me go so uh, <laughs> <he's>... <laughs> oh yeah I know Mike <laughs> yeah yeah he, he keeps uh, yeah he keeps keeps pulling me back in so I am actually yeah I'm working on a couple Call of Cthulhu projects right now I'll have some scenarios and some forthcoming uh, Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest uh, publications so. You know, I'm sneaking that in when I can, so for sure. And uh, in terms of getting Pendragon played and run, I know there's like been a push to get people to GM uh, both Cthulhu and Ringquest at uh, different conventions around the place. And there's, you know, the, the the adventures that you guys bring out and you generally support GMs who want to do that sort of thing. Is there a similar plan in place for getting some Pendragon gems to kind of do the similar sort of thing and basically same font same model really i suppose yeah absolutely i mean right now already we're running more pendragon alongside call of cthulhu and runequest uh at conventions you know we had we had a good i think uh four or five slots at gen con this last year we've got couple new convention scenarios uh, and and you know i'll just put out the standard call if anyone wants to write for pendragon the best way to do it uh, just like with Call of Cthulhu, is write up a scenario and submit it, and um, you know we can we can look at uh, getting that out as a convention scenario, or even maybe you know putting it into a forthcoming uh, publication if it fits one of our one of our ideas. 
Uh, so yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, who wants to write for the line or do art for the line, please do. Yeah, I, I'd like to see going forward something uh, in line with the organized play stuff that we've seen for Call of Cthulhu. And uh, I think Pendragon in particular would actually be more well-suited to that kind of style of play than Call of Cthulhu even. So that might be something we'll be seeing, you know, in the next year or the year after, uh, just as a, uh, but, you know, in the meantime, definitely we'll be offering more and more convention gaming for Pendragon, just so that people can give it a shot and see what they think of it. And in terms of your role gaming, um, is it all Chaosium all the time? Or do you get a chance to sort of branch out yourself? Is there anything that's caught your eye recently that you play or have a rethink? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, for myself, when I'm running these days, I do tend to run Chaosium products uh, just because I like to just always be, you know, building up my experience. Like, for example, with RuneQuest, my, my, my you know, familiarity and experience lies mostly with Pendragon and Call of Cthulhu. Like, those were the Chaosium games I got into uh, back in the 90s. And so with RuneQuest, uh, it's sort of like, yeah, let me run more of this, more of this, more of this so that I can, you know, just know more about the world and, and the system. And if I'm writing for it, you know, <laughs> it's always helpful. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, I, I do try and play as much as I can. Uh, my group's pretty good about rotating GMing duties. And so, gosh, let's see, we played we played some uh, Monster Hearts uh, not too long ago, and I also run a, uh, a one-on-one game with my wife uh, where we play Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, and I actually have a, an actual play podcast called The Esoteric Order of Role Players. so pretty much everything I play is recorded and put out there on that stream. So yeah, we, we play quite a bit. <laughs> so And, and yeah, I, I do think it's important to diversify your, your gaming experience, play the, play the story games, the indie games, play the um, old school games, you know, that never had a chance to play before, you know, you know, I just, you know, any, anything is good because it, it informs my work and both in terms of what I think is working and what doesn't work. And, you know, so yeah, I, I do, I do try and diversify my experience as much as possible. It sounds like from your little list of games there that you quite like, uh, kind of, I suppose, dark games. Is is there room in Pendragon for horror? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Pendragon is, well, I mean, the the Arthurian cycle is ultimately a tragedy, you know. Yeah. Uh, ultimate, ultimately, the Arthur's vision fails and uh, and his, his kingdom collapses. So you can absolutely inject that note of sort of uh, decay and decadence uh, into your games. Uh, if you're doing the Great Pendragon campaign, you're starting out in, in the reign of King Uther, who is, you know, this very, uh, you know, pugnacious and uh, sort of sort of the antithesis of a chivalrous knight, right? He's, he's just, he's very, like, warlike and bellicose, and, and the society reflects that. And then after his death, you have the anarchy period, where it's every man for himself, and and the Saxons are you know constantly threatening to invade, and it's it's a very you know it's a very intense uh, period uh, because it sets it up for when Arthur comes along, everyone's kind of relieved, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so you can always have these these sort of dark or intense themes going through the game, even during the height of Arthur's reign, when there are people muttering about the hypocrisy of chivalry, you know, and that, and that sort of thing. And I have absolutely run flat out horror, you know, scenarios in Pendragon, because then of course you have the, the fairies, right. You have, Mm -hmm. which are 
proper, you know, sort of folkloric fairies who will just as soon uh, murder you as give you something as a gift or whatever. Uh, so anytime you're dealing with a fairy folk, you know, it's it's almost inherently a horror scenario. And uh, Lynn Hardy, I think, actually ran a Call of Cthulhu scenario at the Kraken that was based off of a story seed in the Great Pendragon campaign. Yes. So, yeah, there's absolutely room for that. Um, but, you know, I, I do enjoy that Pendragon offers me a kind of a wider scope for gameplay. So I can run a horror scenario one one week and then the next week it can be romance or intrigue or what have you. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple of mashups myself, which which work quite well. And it, it's quite easy to have, um, I don't know, a, a castle that's on the sea, for example, and um, you can chuck deep ones in and just have uh, their fairies. So like you, just, you don't mention the word deep one or mythos or anything, but yeah, um, yeah. you can put the trappings in there that it's a fairy creature that's coming out of the ocean and describe it. And if people are in the know, then they'll, they'll buy into that potentially. And if people don't know anything about the mythos, they don't have to care. All they know is that one of those horrible fair things is doing something bad again. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. You know, it all works rather nicely. So I, I guess one of the, the other sort of things that Pen, Pendragon always gives me pause, I suppose, is like the, the big battles and things like that. Because I know there is a battle system, but it's quite technical and it's down to numbers and crunch. And I think possibly what might what I prefer to do anyway is use I'll import a system from somewhere else or a framework and make it more about what the players are doing. And then that will inform how the overall battle ends up in the end without having to do the kind of war game crunchy bit, which, you know, for all Greg's great work, he did sort of quite like his, his war game when it came to the battle system. So is there anything around that sort of aspect, like maybe around optional rules or different frameworks you could possibly do, or are you thinking of maybe? Oh yeah. I mean, Greg was, uh, you know, Greg got his start as a war gamer. I think he always had that, that kind of a war gamers uh, proclivities yeah. <laughs> deep down inside. Yeah. And, and I agree. Um, you know, the battle system's there for people who want it. It's uh, well, there's really two systems. There's a system in the core rule book and then there's the book of battle, which is the, the Uber crunch. You know, if you really want to, <laughs> if you really want to get into it, um, which I have run uh, as, as written and half of my group loves it because they're the half that loves to fill out forms and uh, calculate things. And then the other half hates it. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is kind of my experience with the battle system. You, you're either really into it or you don't want anything to do with it. There's a, there's a lot in the rules already. There's a skirmish mechanic that you could just, I, I know a couple players who just use that, you know, so it's like, well, we're just going to run multiple skirmishes and chain them together and call that a battle, you know, and uh, personally, that's how I would do it going forward. I have actually been working on a revision of the battle rules uh, to see print at some point in the future in some publication. We're not sure exactly you know, where that's going to show up. But, you know, we want, we, that, that's one of the things we definitely want to address is, you know, we want everyone to enjoy big battles because you're playing knights and knights, uh, that's kind of their reason for existence, you know, is, is to fight in battles for their, for their lords. So uh, battle should not be something that players are actively trying to avoid. It should be something that's, that's exciting. They were the admin. So, so, I mean, you know, the, the Pendragon system is great and it's, it's not going to change in any way, you know, in, in its, in its substantive uh, elements, but there's always room for improvement. And Greg himself was, was constantly tweaking it and, and modifying it. I'd like to get it to a point where, we kind of have a, a Greg Stafford version of the Pendragon system, 
whether that's a new edition or not, I don't know yet, but you know, that would be uh, some years down the line. But um, you know, in the meantime, we're sort of working on the stuff that we feel is uh, could definitely use some improvement, which the battle system is the number one of that. So, you know, maybe we'll put something out on the website or um, in a small supplement, you know, at some point for people to pick up and look at. So, cause we are, we are uh, revising the, advanced character generation rules right now uh, that's something that's going to be coming out is kind of a revised you know the book of knights and ladies is the current the current advanced character generation system because mm-hmm. right now with the core rule book it just gives you rules for creating knights from the county of salisbury you know and that's basically it uh, oh from the from the uther period and the book of knights and ladies lets you make knights from all over britain and beyond any time period in the chronology so that was something else that was in the pipeline that was getting revised. And so we'll be putting that out. There's there's room for some revisions and some uh some new new takes on on existing approaches. Yeah, it'd be good to get the variety. I've got the the older vision version of that book, which gives you I mean just if you've got different backgrounds to the knights, that again answers that question, isn't it? That some people have been saying we're all playing knights, how am I different? If you can have different backgrounds and different things that you religiously aspire to what you consider to be the right virtues and that sort of thing. That definitely helps mix that up. It's always a, a funny moment when I run Pedrog at the minute when I'm asking people to describe their characters for everyone else and just say, you know, look at your 16 plus stats and they'll be the things that you're famous for. And everybody's like, oh, hey, it's Saxons. It's like, well, I hate Saxons. And then, you know, it's the, I'm Spartacus moment around the table as all the people Christian and I say, yeah, okay, so <laughs> this is why we're friends. We all hate Saxons. Okay. Absolutely, good. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's nice to have a bonding element, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and and something I'm actually pretty excited about with the new revision is we're going to have rules in there for playing uh, pages and squires as well. So if you want to do that kind of that whole genre of Arthurian fantasy, where you're playing like the young knights, you know, the squires turning to not young knights, you could do that. Or if you really want to just go completely crazy, you can start your characters off as squires and, you know, in the year 480 and play them from there, that point on, you know, as they, as they age up, uh, you know, and eventually uh, pass on their legacy. So it adds a, another dimension to gameplay that I'm pretty excited about. So do you think there's anything there? I'm just thinking of kind of how our Magica was run in terms of that you have a wizard and then all these staff, all the grogs. It's almost sounding now like, I mean, we're a little bit off that. Yeah, but as the game line progresses, you could even just have one character who's the knight and then someone else who's the magician and someone who's a lady and a squire. And there's like, there's suddenly like a variety of different roles. So you can have uh, troop play armor so that every week someone else gets to be the knight and then others swap around what role they are and take up different positions. You could absolutely do a troop style approach. Um, that's actually what I took with the samurai version. Um, you know, it's 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 a lot more focused on the clan rather than the individual. You know, and so yeah, no, you could absolutely do that. I mean, as I said earlier with the magic book, the the magician character is is there as someone that can be brought to the front. You know, so that you they're you know kind of this background character, but then every once in a while, someone's like, "Hey guys, I'm going to play," you know, my druid or my lady of the lake or my enchantress this uh, session and um, you know, here's why, you know, like there'll be a reason why, of course, but yeah, no, I, I think the, the core focus of the game will always be on playing knights and the, the experience of being a knight. But I think adding more options for rotating in other types of characters, just to keep things fresh a little bit, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. As long as I get to play Madame Mim from the Disney film at some point and turn into a mouse and frighten an elephant. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of like where I'm coming from. 
That's on the table. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Good. It is something I wanted to ask you about, because um, obviously I've played and run quite a lot of Pendragon, whereas you are probably less familiar. So yeah. is there anything you've heard there that's sort of drawing you in, or perhaps do you have any of the questions about or or ideas that might help pull you into the, the setting of the game, do you think? Yeah, I think I think for uh, for anybody who wants to wants to take a look at Pendragon. I mean, these days it's it's a more crowded marketplace than ever it was when Pendragon was first kicking around. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to sort of know my gaming history, know how revolutionary Pendragon is. Um, but if I were just getting into the hobby now, I think my first question would be, "Huh, knights? So how's that different to D and D?" And I think that's a really relevant question these days. And and I think that you kind of need a, a you need an evangelist, an evangelistic crowd out there who can tell you about the differences without without ragging on the world's most popular role playing game and talk about that sort of generational stuff, the big battles that you've alluded to, Gaz, the potential for troop play, the historical element, the myths. There's a whole bunch more to it because I think if you only give it thirty seconds thought, which is very easy to do in a modern day, you just think, well, I'm not sure I want to play a game with a six paladins. Because that sounds awful. <laughs> so you, know, you, you need to scratch at the surface a little bit, don't you, and realise that it's not just a fantasy role-playing game. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, David. But, you know, you obviously had to make this pitch to people quite a lot, I would imagine, as line editor, because uh, I presume that, you know, you wanted writers early. You don't want people sending you dungeon crawls because that's not right. going to be right like dragon, yeah? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Greg always... He did not take an antagonistic view towards D and D in that sense, where uh, you know what, what he would say is is D and D has a generic approach, and he means that in a non pejorative way, right? You know, where mm. it's like D and D is is sort of like let's let's bring in everything, let's have let's have every aspect of fantasy that we want sort of sort of thrown together and jumbled up. And you know, when I said earlier that Pendragon's the granddaddy of narrative and story games, that's another way where. Pendragon is is taking this hyper focus and it's it's saying this is a genre experience. This is this is the specific genre of Arthurian fantasy. What what makes that different? You know how how is that unlike D anD D? But also how is it its own thing? Right? You know that that's an experience you've never had before. Uh, and you know I. I <sighs> Part of the problem is you do you do kind of have to experience it. There does have to be sort of an evangelistic thing with it, where somebody says, "You got to try this game." Now, I came to Pendragon myself on my own, but it was after reading a review, you know, the, of a of a supplement that made it sound really cool and and kind of unlike, uh, you know, uh, other games out there and other fantasy games. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it it, it does need a bit more than 30 seconds of, of examination to, to really get what it's going for. And yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, starter set is going to be out there. Uh, the Greg day scenario, anyone can go download that right now. It has pre-generated characters in it. There's enough in there. You can just read through it. Even if you don't know the rules, I think it would come across pretty quickly. Okay. This isn't just D and D. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So is, what would you describe as a knight's core activity then? I guess that's the, the other way of doing it. I suppose with lots of role-playing games, the first thing we do when we read them is sort of, sort of work out what do my players do. So if there's, um, like, I don't know, because <clears throat> it's one that I struggle with myself because you can't just say, like, go on quests and adventures because that's what people in D&D do. Yeah. The, the, the core activity is getting glory. And so there are, you know, the, the rules lay out what gets you glory what gets you the most glory? You know, so the savvy player will say, ah, I see, uh, beating up a peasant isn't going to get me any glory. 
But defeating a dragon or a giant is going to get me a huge amount of glory. Battles are going to get me glory. Uh, receiving titles, being ennobled, being uh, raised up, you know, in the in the aristocracy is going to get me glory. So these are the things I want. Uh, getting getting a good marriage is going to get you glory, whether you're a knight or a lady. You know, these are the things you want because every time it, the Pendragon doesn't have levels, but every thousand points of glory you get, you get a, a bonus point that you can use to raise any of your traits or skills or passions or attributes, even if it would otherwise break the rules. Um, and then people actually have little house rules, you know, where they say, or you could use your bonus point to ensure a safe childbirth from your wife, or you can use it to choose uh, the uh, sex of your child if you really want a son or you really want a daughter. You know, uh, there's a lot of other things you could do with those with those bonus points if you want to house rule it. But uh, mostly glory gives you bonuses on certain interpersonal skills. It creates uh, rank, you know, so the higher your glory is, the more important you're perceived in the world, the, the, you know, you're the first one who sort of offered things, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, once you hit around 8,000 glory, you're suddenly looking at maybe getting on the round table, you know, so players just really respond to that. You know, they, they want to just rack up as much glory as they can because it looks cool on their sheet. You know, I've got, <laughs> you know, I've got 12,500 glory, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the core activity is, is acquiring glory and, you know, that guides the gameplay. Yeah, it's like a little freemium game or something that <laughs> they're looking for ways to shortcut it. They can't pay money to get glory, can I? Like, how do I get this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Although technically, you can uh, engage in conspicuous consumption That's that right, would get yeah. glory as well. So if you if you want to dress real flash and like have outrageous parties, you can definitely get glory from that. <laughs> I think that's it's another those little light bulb moments. There seems to be lots of little rules like that in a dragon that I keep forgetting about until I actually play it again. I remember, but I think it was one of the groups last time I ran it in the crack of the Spring Festival. And the, someone was saying like, "Well, who's in charge when I gave it all these nights?" I said, "Well, who's the most glorious?" They're like, "Well, what do you mean?" Well, look at your sheet. Who's got the biggest number in the glory section? It was like, "What? How come he's in charge? Somebody's just done more cool stuff than you have." Like, that's right. That's right. You can change that. You can go out and do something now, which will give you more glory. You can be in charge. Yeah. yeah, if you don't like it, go kill a giant. <laughs> <laughs> like get married or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, and marry a princess. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> yeah, awesome stuff. Right, I'm just conscious of time. It looks like we're coming up to to around more or less. So, with that, have you kind of like any sort of like games you can recommend out there to other people, or cool films you've seen, or books to read, or stuff like that? It's one of the questions we always ask a guest. Is kind of like, what have you seen recently that's got you excited that maybe they can go out and search out for themselves? Okay, I'm I'm going to keep it on brand because I recently uh, saw a, a French film from the 1970s, 1978, called Percival Les Galois. And it is one of the best cinematic uh, adaptations of the medieval, you know, troubadours tales of uh, Arthur. It's obviously it's about Sir Percival and the Grail Quest. It's highly, highly stylized. It is not a film for casual viewing, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it's a fascinating uh, piece of film, and I really enjoyed it. So that would be my recommendation. Well, the Venn diagram of, uh, of listeners to this show and French cinema is a huge overlap. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, when we had Ken Heitzel, he was talking about smoking gawas, so I think there is, there's going to be some kind of link there. There he was, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for that recommendation, David. 
yeah, uh, yeah, 70 Cinema. I love a lot of the stuff from the 70 Cinema. It informs a lot of my games. I've been thinking a lot over the last hour of the Three Musketeers, whether I can yeah. dragon it up. Because, you know, who doesn't want to play like uh, play the Squire character? And I'm just thinking, yeah, I really need to get those books out again. That system needs playing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that would that would go really well together. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Dave. It's been a, a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Cool. We look forward to seeing more Pendragon products in the future and, and what the, the line holds. 